Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. The war in Ukraine rages on. Western countries have provided support, like money, gear, and sometimes weapons, but have stopped short of getting their militaries involved. That's the case with Canada, as well as the UK. And during his State of the Union address earlier this week, U.S. President Joe Biden made his position clear. Our forces are not engaged and will not engage in the conflict with Russian forces in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight Ukraine, but to defend our NATO allies in the event that Putin decides to keep moving west. For that purpose, we have mobilized American ground forces, air squadrons, ship deployments to protect NATO countries, including Poland, Romania, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And as I've made crystal Meanwhile, Russian forces are making advances across Ukraine. Today, The Globe's senior international correspondent, Mark McKinnon, joins us from Lviv, Ukraine. This is The Decibel. Mark, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you, Manika. So we're speaking on Wednesday here. How would you describe the state of things in Ukraine right now? Well, it's a big question. Um, Ukraine is, is losing ground. They've had the southern city of Kherson, which is near to Crimea, appears to be fully in the control of Russian forces. Um, that's in the south. Also, the port city of Berdyansk has fallen to Russia. The uh, port city of Mariupol is uh, surrounded by Russian forces, though it seems like Ukrainian troops are still in control of that city. Um, Chernihiv in the north is surrounded, mm-hmm. and we see just utter scenes of destruction in the big cities of Kharkiv and Kiev as Russia, unable to break through the Ukrainian perimeters, has taken in recent days to just shelling uh, you know, the center of these cities, hitting targets that are uh, civilian targets or near civilian targets. Uh, what's been really incredible, though, at the same time as uh, Ukraine's been losing this ground and they've been hit with all this rocket fire and artillery fire, you know, the spirit of Ukraine is absolutely unbroken. Um, you know, you go into the cities and uh, people are singing the national anthem in, in the subways uh, that are doubling as, as bomb shelters these days. But uh, also, just in an incredible scene today in, in a town called Konotop, which is in, in Sumy province in eastern Ukraine, where you know they're fully surrounded, and, and the Russian army gave a gave an ultimatum to the town's mayor, and he decided he had to take it to the people. And so there's this remarkable video online of the the mayor sort of standing in a public square and saying, you know, my friends, we have to, you know, you know, we've got the decision before us. We can sort of surrender this city to the Russians and, and they say they'll spare it um, or, or we can we can stand our ground, we can fight. And, and the whole crowd there, the, you know, everybody who gathered on the square just shouts back, of course we fight, we fight. And I think that really captures the, what's going on here because I think Ukrainians know that at least without NATO air support, which doesn't seem to be coming, they're 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 outgunned, especially in terms of they can't compete with the Russian air force as brave as their soldiers have been on the ground. They can't compete with Russia's long-range missiles and artillery. So you're you're saying here, Mark? I mean, it, it sounds like there's a bit of a shift now with Russia actually targeting more populated areas. Like you're saying, within cities, there's there, there's more direct targeting there. What does this shift say about the direction the war is taking? And I guess what's Russia's thinking in, in actually targeting these areas now? 
Honestly, it's a surprising one because Vladimir Putin's logic, as I, uh, as somebody who lived in Russia and been reporting on Vladimir Putin for 20 years ago, I think I thought he believed that these Russian-speaking cities like Kharkiv and, and Kiev would welcome him and that the Ukrainian military would collapse quickly. Even the, you know, even the U.S. was broadcasting this Ukraine, Kiev could you know, be sacked in 72 hours. This sort of messaging was that you know, the Ukrainians didn't have much of a chance and and not only are um, is the Ukrainian military putting up an impressive fight, but ordinary Ukrainians have made it quite clear at this point they don't want to be liberated from anything by Russia, um, that they're going to fight Russia. And so this, it feels a bit out of frustration that the Russian military is starting to just fire rockets into the center of cities full of Russian speakers and full of Russian Orthodox cathedrals in, in some cases. I mean, it's, it's really just, I, you know, a lot of this war feels impossible, but this in particular just feels incomprehensible. Like it doesn't make any sense. And I've been messaging with people I knew in Moscow who are, who are analysts who have in the past advised the Kremlin and, and they're saying they have no idea what's going on. It doesn't make sense to them either. Okay. And I think what it means is that, you know, the, that Mr. Putin and his generals are frustrated. And I think they're also trying to cow the Ukrainian people into surrender, you know, to making it, uh, make the costs so high and so terrible, as we've seen in other Russian wars. You know, you think of Syria and you think of Chechnya and, and the way that, you know, cities were utterly destroyed in both of those places, you know, to, to make it impossible for Vladimir Zelensky's government to continue this war, to, to force them to seek a surrender to avoid an escalating civilian toll. You've talked about the Ukrainian resistance a lot here too, Mark, and it looks like now the Russian army is now working up to big campaigns in, in Kiev and in Kharkiv. I wonder at this point, from everything that you've seen there and the people you've talked to, will Ukraine be able to hold off the Russian army? Um, there's two answers to that. And, and, and one is, no, I don't think they are capable of defeating the Russian military, not because their troops aren't, aren't experienced enough, aren't brave enough. When you're being hit from the air constantly by Iskander missiles, by bombs dropped from the sky, it's difficult to compete with that. And the second side of that story is I don't see any way that Russia can hope to occupy these places. If there's a Kalashnikov out of every window, there's a Molotov cocktail being thrown from every passing car. I saw you know, yesterday there was a video of a guy just driving along. He pulls up beside a Russian tank that's completely sort of you know not expecting an attack from the the sedan beside it, and the, and the guy just like rolled down his passenger window and launched a Molotov cocktail into the tank, and it which lit it up, you know. <laughs> so, it, that's the kind of resistance we're seeing. That you know, you can't, as as the United States learned in Iraq, you can win the war, and then lose the peace or, or lose what comes afterwards. And I think that's a very comparable situation. I was in Baghdad when it fell in 2003 and the, you know, it, this initially impressive American military campaign, you know, hours later, just driving around the city, you know, someone shot at my car and I realized these people don't want us here. And it's going to be really hard to stay um, in a country where you're completely unwelcome. Is there any situation you think where other countries, NATO countries, Canada, the US, Europe, uh, would actually get involved in, in physical fighting in this war? It's a really difficult one. And uh, I think it was Seva Gunitsky, who's a very bright professor at the University of Toronto, put on Twitter today. But he said, you know, essentially, there, there are two choices here. You can be in favor of NATO trying to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine, as it did over Iraq, uh, to stop um, Saddam Hussein from targeting the Kurds, as it did over uh, the Balkans. Um, but that could bring us to the brink of a nuclear conflict, as, as Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov made very clear today, and as Mr. Putin has made clear by putting his nuclear forces on alert. And I don't know if the West is ready for, for an extinction event over Ukraine. <laughs> 
The other side of this is, you know, are we willing to sit back and watch, uh, you know, humanitarian catastrophe, war crimes being committed in Europe in 2022? And you're kind of on one side of that or the other right now, which is not, there's no right or wrong answer. And I, I, I think NATO and the West are starting to understand the stakes here, and they're going to incredible lengths with um, targeting Russia's economy. You know, now I think for the first time, uh, the Russians I know are waking up, They're, the value of their savings is, is obliterated. They can't fly anywhere. There's no um, sporting events, you know, concerts are being canceled that people were looking forward to going to. The price of everything is going through the roof. So I think if there's a strategy here, and it's the only a nascent one, and it's a long shot, frankly, it's to force the Russian people to take to the streets, to, to realize that this that they can't live like this either. And that's the only peaceful way out I can see, uh, as peaceful as that would be. There's no, there's no peace here, obviously. You talk about a, you know, a, a, the idea of a peaceful way out. We have seen some attempts at peace talks. Is there any, any kind of progress or any hope that that might come to a solution? No, because what Mr. Putin wants is Ukrainian capitulation. That's why you see this targeting of civilian areas. So it's not a peace talk. It's a, it's a surrender. Um, you know, it's the beginning of the arm twist. They're saying to Mr. Zelensky, is this enough? Is this enough? Is this enough? And so far, Vladimir Zelensky, who many people underestimated coming into this conflict, there was a lot of grumbling in Kyiv, even the day before this war began, that he was the wrong guy for this moment. And he's impressed everybody with his resilience, his strength, his charisma, his courage. And he does represent Ukrainians, all of them right now, when he says, no, thank you. Or he says, it's not no, thank you. There's billboards here in, in Lviv that I can't repeat what they say, but the very strong message, the same one that was conveyed by the 13 Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island um, to, to Mr. Putin. And, and so, yes, these talks will, will continue because, as Zelensky himself said, you can't, in this moment, say you don't want to have peace talks. ...reach an agreement. We are for dialogue, yes, but the least that must happen is the bombardment of people must stop. You simply have to stop the bombardment and then sit down behind the table for talks. But they're not about peace. They're about Russia repeating its terms of, of surrender. Like, this is what it, we will stop if... And that's the demilitarization of Ukraine and a change of government in Ukraine. There's a lot of um, rumors coming out now, reports that Russia's intent is to restore Viktor Yanukovych, the pre-2014 president, who they see as always having been the constitutional president of Ukraine, despite being absolutely hated here and thrown out by the street protests eight years ago. Their intent may be to restore his rule, however much violence it requires. If I can take you back to February 24th, when the invasion did begin, when you were in Kyiv, can you just explain to us what was that like and where were you when, when things started then? Um, uh, cancer patients talk about the last good day, the last day before they started to really feel like their life was heading towards an ending. I remember if Kyiv had a last good day, it was the, the night of the 23rd. And there was a sense because, you know, it was all over the news that there were reports the Russians were going to attack at 4 a.m. or what have you that day. So I went to my favorite restaurant in Kyiv and I ordered my favorite food. And uh, I went and dined by myself. There were a lot of colleagues having tables um, sort of around the city. I just, I just wanted to sit by myself for a bit. 
And then, you know, went up to, uh, went up, stayed up till three in the morning because that was when the battle was supposed to start or something. And then nothing happened. So I said, you know, I, <laughs> I'm going to go to bed. And I think I closed my eyes at four. And at 4.40, um, the uh, first air raid sirens were screaming. Um, so went down into the, the, the parking garage, two floors under the, the Radisson Hotel in Central Kiev. You know, so when the war began, it was it was in the, I was in, the, in a parking garage, um, thinking of all the things that you forgot to bring down down the stairs with you. Like what? Like what kind of things do you think about in that moment? Uh, you know, you, you sort of the first things you grab are you know I, I'm a journalist, so I grab my backpack with all my work gear in it, and uh, you know I had my my bulletproof vest and I had my um, my computer and I had my my phone and I had all my cords and all that sort of thing. And I got down there and you realize you don't know how how long you're going to be down there for. And all I want to do is take out my contact lenses. And uh, (laughs) that was all sort of nine floors up. And, and, uh, uh, you know, my asthma inhaler was not where it should be. Stuff like that. A flashlight. I'd forgotten a flashlight. And so the go bag wasn't 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 primed. It it now very much is, obviously. And you stayed in in Kiev for a few days and then and then eventually you left that hotel. What made you leave that that part of the city? I sort of realized we were within a few hundred meters of, of potential targets. And um, also, to be honest, you know, being in a crowd of, of journalists with different levels of panic, it was, it's not good for anybody's mental health. Um, <laughs> so we decided, first of all, just myself and uh, my colleague, Emma, from The Guardian newspaper and, and our photographer and, and sort of local journalist, Anton Skiba, who's an amazing resource. Um, the three of us just decided to move to Anton's uh, flat on the outskirts of Kiev. And we, we stayed there for, for a night. And um, then the next morning we woke up and it was just the, you know, the, the sounds of war were quite intense. And we decided that rather than being inside what everyone believed would be the, the siege of Kiev, we would just move just outside the city. So we moved to the safe house, as we called it. It's more of a like a country cottage. Um, it, you know, it had like a trampoline and a wood-burning stove and a little fire pit outside. Nice place to go camping. And for about 12 hours, that was a really good idea. And then, um, you know, we, we started to hear warplanes screaming overhead and artillery fire not coming towards us, but outgoing, meaning there were some Ukrainian artillery positions nearby. Not having tactical maps of Ukraine at hand, uh, we put ourselves between two more targets that we hadn't calculated on. One was a, a Ukrainian air base and the other was a, an oil refinery. Neither was particularly close, but after the oil refinery got bombed, you know, which you know, sent us all diving to the ground for, you know, must have been a do- one of one of a dozen times over the weekend, we just thought this is this is not sustainable. The air is sort of acrid, and and uh, we don't know how this fight for the air base is going to go. And if these Ukrainian p- artillery positions keep moving closer to us, we might, you know, be the recip- you know, get close to a some return fire. So. After a few days there, we decided to move again, and um, we got in our. Uh, well, we didn't have a car, which was part of a, a big part of the drama. We were stuck there. We wanted to leave, but we didn't have a car. So, what did you do? How did you get a car then? How did you get out? Um, so uh, this sounds crazy. It probably was. Um, we we found a car online hmm. that was for sale um, in in Lviv, actually, and so online we purchased ourselves a. Um, I think it's a 2004 Land Rover <laughs> that somehow has British license plates on it. Um, so now we're the, the proud owners of a 2004 uh, Land Rover. Well, the Globe and Mail and the Guardian are. <laughs> and so you've got this car now, and I and I guess I know you you take it and you're you're driving then towards Lviv. You wrote a piece where you mentioned checkpoints along the way. Can you just tell us about about those? We charted this very wiggly route through the Ukrainian countryside to try and go between these two points that were now. Under at least there's at least a Russian presence in, if not under Russian control. 
And uh, I'd say every 10, 10 kilometers or so, um, you run into another Ukrainian checkpoint. And some of these are, are incredibly professional, like they're run by soldiers in uniforms who just sort of look at your IDs and then wave you onwards. But others, I mean, they're just sort of the, the villagers have gotten themselves together and they've, you know, erected some cinder blocks and, um, you know, pulled some logs across the road. And they're just incredibly nervous, as you can imagine. Uh, they don't know why this license plate, <laughs> this, this Land Rover with foreign license plates is coming at them or what's going on inside. We had some really um, interesting interrogations, uh, including one that involved this guy, uh, his name was Anton, saying, you know, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to check you with my, you say you're from Canada, I'm going to check you out with my brother. And so he, he calls his brother in Etobicoke, who answers the phone at four in the morning, in I guess Etobicoke, he was staring. Ontario? His brother's in Etobicoke, Ontario. Etobicoke, Ontario, <laughs> sorry, yeah. And and he and he's awakened at four in the morning, but he's watching the news, of course. And so he, he says, I said, oh, you know, my name is Mark McKinnon, I work for the Globe and Mail. If you turn on, you know, your computer right now and go to the Globe and Mail homepage, you'll see the work I do. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's all well and good. But um, you know, where are you from? And I said, Ottawa. He's like, where exactly in Ottawa? And I said, well, I grew up in Stittsville. I mean, where my parents used to live is right where the, where the Senator's rink is. I almost called it the Corel center. Cause that's what it was once called or the palladium or all these different, it's had all these different names. Finally, I remember it's called the Canadian tire center now. And I called it a rink. And uh, he just said, hand it back to my brother. And I was like, oh, my God, he's gonna, he knows it's an arena. It's not a rink. And, I've, and now I've blown my – but I think <laughs> just knowing where the, where the senator's play was enough for him. Mark, the last time we spoke to you last week, it was it was just before the Russian invasion actually began when you were in Kiev. And, and you're now in Lviv. Can you just kind of contrast those two cities for us? What How is Lviv different right now than, than Kiev is? I mean, I'll preface it by saying that I began my day by, you know, having breakfast, a warm breakfast, which was un- impossible the last few days around Kiev. And, but then I was in a, a bomb shelter before I finished my coffee because there were air raid sirens. Mm-hmm. So this is a place, Lviv in Western Ukraine has largely been unscarred so far. It's a long way from the cities that Mr. Putin is currently targeting. It's 500 kilometers west of Kiev. Bank machines still kind of function here. It took me a while, but I found one and got some cash today. Um, like restaurants function up to a certain point, though alcohol sales are banned as part of the general martial law that's been declared in the country. So, you know, it's nothing like normal here. I was watching people putting sandbags at the window of the French consulate a while ago and, and, and you know, sort of buildings in the main square were having metal sheeting, uh, you know, sort of hammered over their windows. It's, it's still plays very much under the control of the Ukrainian military. But people wonder for how long. And given what Mr. Putin has done and is doing to Russian-speaking cities in the east of Ukraine, this is, you know, this is this is Western Ukraine. This is the part of the country that has always resisted Russian rule. Um, it's the heartland of the of sort of Ukrainian nationalism of the Ukrainian Patriotic Army, which you know Mr. Putin calls a Nazi formation. If he gets here, I think people here are quite afraid he'll be even more merciless than he's than he's being in the in the Russian speaking parts of the country. Do you think there'll be a time where you have to even leave Lviv and, and get out of the country altogether? I hope that moment doesn't come. My intention is not to leave until it's um, absolutely necessary. We we obviously are talking about these things with with our editors, with um, my, my Ukrainian colleagues, for whom it's a much harder decision to stay or to go. Um, yeah, if the war comes to Lviv, it'll be difficult. I mean, as and, and I think everyone assumes it will come to Lviv eventually. Um, it's very, as we discovered around Kiev, it's um, very difficult to work when not only is there the Russian military 
taking action around you and this, this physical danger. But the people you're trying to interview, they're incredibly suspicious of, of strangers who are showing up right now. They don't really want to talk or give their names right now. So it's a scary time for everybody. Um, we uh, intend to stay. I intend to stay. I'm making this. Why I'm in Lviv is not because I want to be as far away as possible, but to get things like money and gasoline um, to continue. Yeah, certainly hope to remain, hope that this conflict somehow comes to an end and, and then we want to be here to see what's happened to this country if we get a moment to drive forward back to Kiev, to a city that I love so much. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time today and, and, and please do stay as safe as possible. Thank you very much. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.